An Irish Ghost Story. Throughout Ireland's history, and even in the present day, many have professed to have seen the banshee as she goes wailing and clapping her hands in grief. On those rare occasions when more than one banshee has been present, they have wailed and sang their haunting songs in chorus for the death of some great leader or holy man. There is, also, among the records of those who have seen the banshee, reports that on some occasions she is accompanied by a large, black coach, upon which is mounted a coffin. This so-called death coach is drawn by huge, black, headless horses that are driven on by a headless coachman. From out of the darkening sky the coach will rumble its way to the door of your house, seeking to transport the souls of those who are dead to their final resting place. It's said that if you open your door to the death coach a basin of blood is thrown into your face as a sign of purifying the house and dead person by removing evil spirits. It is the way of the banshee that not every Irish family can claim the honor of having one attend to them. According to custom the family must be respectably descended from a long and ancient line if it is to have a warning spirit of their own. At the same time, the banshee does not appear to be influenced by any difference of creed. Providing there is no other impediment even Protestant families of Norman and Anglo-Saxon origin are able to boast of having their own banshee. It is with some pride that even in our modern times several noble and distinguished families in Ireland can claim that this mysterious being continues to watch over them. Furthermore, it appears, she is not influenced by the circumstances of rank or fortune. In fact, the banshee is more often found frequenting the homes of the lower classes than the homes of the rich and influential. It will interest you, therefore, to read that the following tale is one told by a member of a humble family that has claimed the honor of an attendant banshee for many years. This story, then, is only one of many witness reports. Not so many years ago there was a farmer, who lived in the vicinity of the beautifully scenic glens of Antrim. At this stage of the story it is not necessary to disclose this man's name, but we can tell the reader that he never saw the need to get married. In the same house lived the only child of his deceased sister, a son, and his elderly mother who acted as housekeeper in the home over which she was once mistress. The old woman and her grandson were both followers of the Roman Catholic Church, into which the farmer himself was baptized. For reasons best known to himself the man's faith lapsed, and he was like a man in search of faith. As he grew older, however, the farmer's search for a loving God to believe in appeared to waver and he became more atheistic in his outlook. He had no time for church-going people, or the idea of sin, preferring to enjoy the fruits of life and not have to worry about accountability. He developed a rather dark, unattractive personality and kept himself aloof from others. He appeared sullen most of the time and showed himself to be a man of gloomy temperament. All of these personality imperfections, aligned with his well-known distaste of anything religious, only helped make him somewhat unpopular amongst his neighbors. He may not have been well-liked by his neighbors, but he was generally respected by them. In his dealings with them he never insulted or antagonized them, and was considered by most to be an honest, inoffensive man. More importantly he was a large and muscular man who, even when he was younger, had a reputation for toughness and being able to handle himself in a scrap. It comes as no surprise then that there were very few of his neighbors and acquaintances who desired to disturb him, even if they felt they had the cause to do so. It was not only toward religion that this farmer's hostility was directed. Having been well educated in modern science he was very much hostile to every kind of superstition, and he was constantly berating his old mother about all the superstitions she held to. The old woman was an extremely superstitious person, and she allowed others to believe that she was entirely conversant with everything concerning witchcraft, the spirits, and the fairy world which she was certain surrounded them. Although his farm bordered the lands of several neighbors, he rarely set foot across the door of any of these. Moreover, he seldom asked any of his neighbors to enter his home and preferred to spend his leisure time reading books from a wide variety of genres. 
He also spent time in refurbishing his farm tools and equipment, which he viewed as vital to his livelihood. Occasionally he would spend time listening to and laughing at the wild, often bloodthirsty stories told by his old mother, Mary. She was an endless repository of such stories and she enjoyed relating them to both her son and grandson. This farmer had reached the age of 40 years by the time our story takes place and old Mary had become extremely feeble with age. Her body was greatly stooped over and racked with arthritis, while her face was made ugly by her dry and wrinkled skin. One cold November morning the farmer got out of bed before the first rays of daylight had broken through the darkness of the night. As he came out of his bedroom, he was somewhat surprised to find his aged mother in the kitchen, sitting over a fire she had raked up in the hearth. She sat there in a serious and meditative mood, smoking an untipped cigarette. Good morning, Ma, he greeted her. What are you doing up out of your warm bed so early in the day? Ah sure I don't rightly know what's wrong with me, she answered him. I have had such a bad night, altogether. Sure, I never slept a wink and thought I would get up for a cup of tea and a smoke to see if it would help. And what ails you, Ma? Are you sick, or what has come over you? No, son. Thanks be to God I am not sick, but my heart seems that it is ready to burst, and there's a such a heavy weight on my body that it makes me feel so weak. Maybe it's just a bad dream, Ma, or maybe a wee bug of some kind, he said to her, in a tone that showed that he did not take her complaints too seriously. He was sure, from previous experience, that the old woman's complaints could be put down to her simply feeling her age and not willing to admit it. A bad dream. Repeated old Mary, with a bitter sneer. You think I'm imagining it, I wish to God that it was only my imagination, son. But, unfortunately, I am very much afraid that it is a lot worse than that. I have a notion that there is great trouble and misfortune hanging over lives at this moment. And what makes you think such things, ma? He asked her with a half-suppressed smile on his face that demonstrated doubts. Mary, however, was well aware of his strong hostility toward every mention of superstitious beliefs and signs. She, therefore, chose to remain silent, but she bit her lower lip and shook her grey head despairingly. Why don't you answer me, Ma? The farmer again asked the old lady. Pay me no mind, said Mary, sure I am just an old woman and don't really want to tell you, because you will only laugh at me and think that I am going crazy. Nevertheless, you can mock and laugh at me, but I will tell you there is something bad hanging over this place. The banshee was about this house all through the night, and she has almost frightened me out of my wits with her shouting and bawling. Naturally, Mary's son was fully aware of the banshee having been long supposed to haunt his family. In the past the man had sought the truth of the tale and was frustrated in his efforts. But, although he doubted the creature's existence, and had not heard of her visiting the place in many years, he was totally unprepared for Mary's announcement. He had not expected to experience the freezing sensation that moved so quickly up his spine. His complexion turned as pale as that of a corpse, and his body began to tremble excessively. It took several moments for him to gather himself together and with a forced smile he asked his mother, and how do you know it was the banshee, Ma? She looked up at her son in disbelief that he would ask such a question. How do I know? Mary questioned him with a taunting sneer. Sure, didn't I see and hear her several times during the night? And more than that, didn't I hear the cursed dead coach rattling round the house, and through the yard, every night at midnight this last week? I was afraid that the house would be shaken so bad it would crumble around us. That forced smile was not yet gone from the man's face. He was frightened by the prospect of the banshee's presence, yet he was ashamed to show any fear to his mother. He asked her, and did you ever see the banshee before, Ma? Of course, I have, Mary insisted. I have seen her on many occasions. Didn't I see her when your father died? Didn't I see her when your sister and her man died? In fact, 
there is not one member of this family that has died in these last sixty years that I did not both see and hear the banshee. Tonight, where did you see her? How did she look? He questioned further. There was a sort of reddish light that lit up the entire house and caused me to waken, she began. It was then that I saw her at the little window over my bed. I could clearly distinguish her old, pale face and glassy eyes staring in at me, and she was rocking herself to and fro, clapping her tiny, withered hands, and crying out as if her heart was about to break into. Nonsense. He told her. It's all in your imagination, go, now, and get the breakfast ready. I need to go into Ballymena today to get a few things. If I can get into town early enough, then I can ensure I will be home early. A sudden feeling of cold caused the old woman to tremble. She looked at him with a tear forming in her eye and implored him, for heaven's sake, John, don't go today. Please stay and go to Ballymena another day. I am afraid for you, son, I have a terrible feeling that should you go to town today there will be something bad happen to you on the road. Nonsense, woman. Said John. Don't worry your head over such stupid things and get me my breakfast, please. Mary, with tears now flowing from her eyes, rose from her sea and began to get John's breakfast ready for him. While she made his breakfast John washed, shaved, and began to dress for the journey to town. Finally, having completed his preparations in the bedroom, John returned to the kitchen and sat down to a breakfast of porridge, followed with tea and toast. John enjoyed his food and quickly ate all that was set before. With breakfast concluded in silence John got up from the kitchen table and moved to put on his overcoat before leaving the house. At this point Mary moved as quickly as she could door the door. Flinging herself to her knees she cried out to him loudly, John, John, please listen to me. Don't go today. Please take heed of my warning. Although an old woman, I know more of the world than you do, and I can plainly see that if you go from here today you will never enter alive through this door again. John would not allow himself to be influenced by the drivel of wild superstitions from an old, doting woman. He gently pushed her out of his way with his hand, and proceeding to the farmyard, mounted his Yamaha motorbike and departed. With great sadness Mary watched him as he rode out of the yard, the tears still flowing from her eyes. When he went outside her range of vision, she turned back through the kitchen door, sat down by the fireside, removed her handkerchief from her apron, and she wept bitterly for her son. The day was a bitterly cold one and John went about his business in town quickly. Then, as soon as his business was finished, and feeling the chill of the day, he decided to visit a local public house. On entering the bar John immediately ordered a glass of hot whiskey to help him remove the chill on his body. As he drank at the bar an old friend entered and greeted him warmly, insisting that John have another glass with him before he left. The friend had not seen John for over a year, and he was keen to catch up on any gossip and other things that John might know. As is always the case in such circumstances, one glass brought another, and it was late afternoon before John decided that he needed to get home. It was already getting dark outside and, having nearly ten miles to travel, it would be nighttime before he would reach home again. John's friend, however, was not prepared to allow him to leave the bar when the crack was so good. The order for more hot whiskey and Guinness was called and it was not until well into the night that the friends finally parted in a much inebriated state. Of course, John was fully aware that he should not ride his motorbike while he was drunk. But good sense had long departed and having mounted his bike, John switched on the engine, turned the accelerator, and roared off from the space in which he had parked earlier. Somehow, he did not have any problems moving down the streets of the town and once outside its boundaries he dashed along at a rapid pace through the gloom and silence of the winter's night. John had driven almost five miles from the town when, on arriving at a very desolate part of the road, a gunshot was fired from behind the bushes along the roadside. In that instant John was knocked of his bike, which crashed into a large oak tree. 
he was dead before he touched the ground, the victim of a stray shot fired by one of two poachers in nearby woodland. The two poachers rushed to John's body, lying at the side of the road, and searched him for identity. They found and took his wallet full of money and, afraid of the consequences of their actions, the two men disappeared into the night before any other person came on the scene. In the house Mary did not go to bed that night but sat at the fireside impatiently waiting for her son to return home. In the silence of the kitchen she listened for even the slightest sound that might indicate the arrival of his motorcycle. But all Mary's listening and waiting was in vain. No sound met her ear except the sad wail of the night wind, which moaned fitfully through the tall bushes that surrounded the old house. Standing at the kitchen door Mary could hear the sullen roar of the narrow, dark river, which wound its way through the fields a short distance away. Overcome with tiredness, watching and listening for such a long period of time Mary finally fell asleep in the armchair that stood by the hearth. But the old lady's sleep was not a restful one. She was constantly disturbed and awoken by frightful and appalling dreams that incessantly haunted her imagination. At long last the grayness of early morning appeared, struggling through the wintry clouds, and Mary again opened the door to look out. She was dismayed to find no sign of her son's motorbike, but her hopes were raised by the sound of a car engine as it entered the yard. Her hopes were quickly shattered, however, when she noticed two policemen get out of the vehicle. At that moment she knew that they were not bringing her good news and she expelled a great scream of grief as she fell to her knees. The two policemen rushed to her aid and several neighbors quickly gathered to see what was amiss. Working together they raised Mary to her feet and returned her to the comfort of her armchair in the kitchen. It was then that the policeman explained that her son had been shot and was dead. Mary was told that a few hours previously a police patrol had found his body lying at the side of the road, about five miles from town. John's body had been found stretched on his back at the side of the road, immersed in a pool of blood that appeared to have its origin in a bullet hole to his head. The police further explained that when his body was examined at the scene no wallet or money was found on his person. The body was subsequently taken for a post-mortem and the inquiry declared John's death to be unlawful killing by a person, or persons, unknown. After the inquest John's body was returned home to be waked, as was traditional, before being committed to the family grave in the small rural graveyard next to the local church. Having no legitimate children, the nearest heir to his property was his nephew. But he was too young to inherit and the old woman was considered too old to look after him properly. There was a nephew of Mary's living in England who would be the ideal guardian and Mary immediately wrote a letter to him explaining what had happened. He was asked to help the family out and while they waited on him two young men from a neighbor's family were appointed to take care of the place. This is not a new thing in rural Ireland. Traditionally rural people help each other out at times of harvest and times of difficulty, and the two youths delegated to act as guardians had been well known and respected by John. Jack Donnelly was, like Mary, also a Roman Catholic and was a stoutly built, handsome fellow, who always had a pleasant word for everyone he met. He was full of life, energy and the bravado that is so typical of all young men and not just those who live in Ireland. Jack was considerably younger than John and was an active member of the local parish, but very Republican in his political outlook. He was a young man with the courage of a lion and was never afraid to stand up to any man. He was, however, extremely superstitious, and would walk miles out of his road to avoid a fairy tree, or an ancient wrath. Jack's best friend, Harry Baker, on the other hand, came from a staunch, loyalist and Protestant background. He was a tall, genteel-looking man with a proud and imperious manner, full of reserve and haughtiness. There were not many who could tolerate Harry, but Jack saw his friend's manner as being a natural consequence of his political consciousness, religious background, and his superior intelligence and education. Just like his friend Jack, Harry also enjoyed a glass or two of good whiskey and stout. Unlike Jack, 
however, he was of a more peaceful disposition and was utterly opposed to any superstitious beliefs. Considering himself to be better educated and more intelligent than most, Harry scornfully laughed at the very idea that such things as ghosts, goblins, and fairies existed. It makes you wonder how Jack and Harry could be such good friends when they were diametrically opposed to each other in every point except their love of the gargle, alcohol, and yet both men never failed to seize every opportunity of being together. There were occasions that they would physically fight each other, often blackening each other's eyes when discussing their political and religious disputes. Despite this, their quarrels were always settled in an amicable way because they were never happy unless they were in each other's company. Both Jack and Harry had been staying in Mary's house for about seven nights and they had been doing everything they could for her on the farm. As was usual the two men would sit in the kitchen at night, where they would share a few drinks before getting some sleep. The nights were getting colder and a large turf fire blazed brightly on the kitchen hearth, keeping them warm. Meanwhile, in her small adjacent bedroom old Mary was in a deep sleep, stretched out upon her good-sized bed and wrapped in warm blankets. Between the two friends, stood a small oak table, upon which was placed a large bottle of whiskey, a kettle of boiled water, and a bowl of sugar. Knowing there was still a chance that cattle and sheep thieves might target the farm. But, to give them an added sense of security and comfort Harry had brought his shotgun and placed it on one end of the table. As they sat and talked both men constantly recharged their glasses from the bottle of whiskey, laughing and chatting as they recounted stories of their youth. Although they tried to be as quiet as possible the house was filled with a sense of mirth that had not been seen for many a long day. It was during one conversation that Jack mentioned the story Mary had told about the Banshee's appearance, and he expressed a sincere hope that she would not come that night to disturb their comfort. Banshee? Not that bloody nonsense again? Harry shouted. You papists are an awfully superstitious lot. I would like to see the face of any man, dead or alive, who would dare to make an appearance in this place tonight. He reached over and put his hand on the double-barrel shotgun and with a wicked smile he told Jack, By all that's holy, Jack, I will let them have both barrels in one go if they annoy us tonight. It will not help you to shoot your gun at a banshee, laughed Jack. Rubbish! said Harry and he gave Jack a contemptuous look across the table. Anyone that comes here tonight will be no spirit but a being of flesh and blood. I wouldn't think twice about pulling the triggers on them, you can be sure of that. As if to seal his oath Harry drained another tumbler of whiskey punch. But forget all that, Jack, said Harry unexpectedly. Now that we are in such good humor, give us one of your songs. No problem, replied Jack. What song would you like to hear? Anything you please, you choose the song but don't sing it too loud and awaken old Mary, answered Harry. Jack put his hand to his mouth and, after coughing and clearing his throat, he began to sing softly. In quick succession he sang the Orange Cat and prolonged version of the Lakes of Killarney. Both songs were not exactly poetic ballads, but Jack sung them because they expressed sentiments that were hostile to the British. They were songs that were popular among the more Republican-minded people of the North but antagonistic toward the Protestant, Unionist population. Harry, however, just laughed at his friend's foolish efforts to annoy him and quietly applauded when Jack had concluded his little concert. Well done, Jack, said Harry with a smile as soon as the singing ended, you have a great singing voice but not much taste in songs. Then you give us a wee song then, said Jack. Harry, without hesitation cleared his throat and began to run through his scales. Jack noticed a wicked smile on his friend's face but sat back in his chair to listen to Harry's song. With his deep, soft, and sonorous voice, Harry began to sing. It is old, but it is beautiful. And its colors they are fine. It was worn in Derry, Ogram. And Eskelin and the Boyne. Sure, my father wore it in his youth. In those bygone days of yore. And on the twelfth I loved to wear. 
The sash my father wore. Jack, from the beginning of Harry's song, facially exhibited his aversion to the sentiments it expressed. But, when Harry began to repeat the song as a chorus, Jack lost all of his patience. He jumped up from his seat and bent over the table toward his friend. He swore vehemently at him and threatened to break his gob if he didn't stop singing his song immediately. Cool the jets, mate, said Harry laughing. I didn't take the bait when you sang your songs just a while ago. Besides, sure it is only a bit of crack and nothing to get irritated about. Jack was quickly pacified, and Harry continued with a new song. Of all the money that e'er I had, I spent it in good company. And of all the harm that e'er I've done, alas was done to none but me. And all I've done for one of wit, to memory now I cannot recall. So, fill me to the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. Of all the comrades that e'er I had, they're sorry for my going away and of all the sweethearts that e'er I had, they wish me one more day to stay. But since it falls unto my lot that I should rise while you should not. I will gently rise, and I'll softly call. Good night and joy be with you all. Oh, if I had money enough to spend and leisure time to sit a while. There is a fair maid in this town that sorely has my heart beguiled. Her rosy cheeks and ruby lips, she alone has my heart in thrall. So, fill me to the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. Jack was so pleased with the surprise of Harry singing his favorite song that he joyfully stretched out his hand, and even joined in chorus to the concluding stanza. It was getting really late by this time and the fire had now almost died away on the hearth. More importantly, the whiskey bottle was almost emptied, and the two friends were getting very drowsy. Jack turned off the lamp and laid his head down on the sofa to sleep. Harry, in the meantime, settled himself down in the big armchair at the side of the hearth. The singing and the laughter were now hushed, and no sound was to be heard in the house but the incessant tick, tick, of the clock on the wooden dresser that stood in the kitchen. Jack and Harry did not know how long they had slept when, suddenly, the old woman awakened with a wild shriek that swept through the entire house. In a panic Mary jumped out of bed, ran into the kitchen and onto the sofa beside Jack. While Harry fell out of the armchair in a state of shock, Jack struggled to remove Mary's terrified grip from around his neck. What the hell has happened? He shouted from beneath the sprawled figure of the old woman. It's her. She screamed in answer. The banshee, the banshee. Lord have mercy on us. She has come again, and I have never heard her wail so wildly. Jack, of course, immediately believed old Mary's explanation. Harry, however, was not so easily convinced and thought it might be some person who was trying to play a not-too-funny joke on the old woman. Both men listened attentively, but they could hear absolutely nothing. They opened the kitchen door, but all outside the house was still in that fine, calm night, under deep, blue-black sky filled with myriads of twinkling stars. As they went around the hay sheds, all was calm and lonely, and the only sound that greeted their ears was the shrill barking of some neighboring dog in the distance. It was so quiet, indeed, that the sluggish murmuring of the little tortuous river could be clearly heard nearby. Finally satisfied that everything was all right, the two men decided to return to the kitchen of the house, where they would replenish the still-glowing embers of the fire. Now that they had been awakened again both agreed that it was a good opportunity to finish whatever still remained in the whiskey bottle that was left on the table. But they had not been sitting at the kitchen for many minutes when a wild, unearthly cry, originating from outside the house, broke the calm. It's the banshee again, Mary said in a faint voice. Jack's blood drained from his body and with it much of his courage. Harry jumped up and grabbed hold of his shotgun. When Jack saw what his friend was doing, he caught hold of his arm. No, no, Harry, you can't do this, he said firmly but in a shaking voice. Just sit down quietly, for there is nothing to fear. Nothing is going to happen us. 
Without a single word of protest Harry sat down again, but he still maintained a strong grip on the shotgun. Jack took a cigarette from a packet left on the table, lit it with a match, and took a long slow drag from it. Meanwhile, old Mary had gone down to the floor on her knees, striking her breast, and repeating a litany of prayers with great determination. The sad wailing cry was again heard, though much louder and fiercer than before. One moment it seemed to originate from the window, and the next moment it appeared to be coming from somewhere near the door. The men could see nothing but could hear everything. At times, the wailing seemed as if it was in the distance, then again it would appear as if it was coming down the chimney or springing up from the ground beneath their feet. Sometimes the wailing resembled the low, plaintive cry of a woman in great distress. Then, a moment later, it was more like a prolonged yell, loud and furious, and as if it being issued by a thousand throats. There were times when the sound resembled a low, melancholy chant, and then there were other times when it quickly changed to a loud, broken, and demoniacal laugh. This was how the noise continued, almost without a break, for about a quarter of an hour or more. The sound then died away to be succeeded by a heavy, creaking sound, as if from some large wagon that was approaching and, in the middle of this, the loud tramp of horses' footsteps might be distinguished, which were accompanied by a strong, rushing wind. To their ears this new, strange noise appeared to travel around and around the house two or three times. Then, very suddenly, this sound seemed to make its way down the lane that led from the house to the road and was heard no more. Jack stood dumbfounded by the experience, while Harry, despite all his philosophy and skepticism, was completely astonished and frightened by what he had heard. This has been one hell of a night, Mary, said Jack, at last. Indeed, she replied. That was the death coach. I have often heard it before and have seen it once or twice. Did you say that you had seen it? asked Harry. What was it like? Old Mary thought for a moment or two before telling Harry, it's just like any other horse-drawn coach, but it is twice as big and is drawn by headless black horses. It is all hung over with black cloth, and there is a black coffin on the top of it. God protect us! exclaimed a frightened Jack. It is very strange phenomenon, remarked Harry. But continued Mary, the coach always comes before the death of a person, and I wonder what brought it now, unless it came with a banshee. Maybe it's coming for you, said Harry. No, no, she said, I am not one of the select. For a few minutes all three persons stayed silent awaiting for the sounds to return. They even began to believe that the banshee had now vanished, until once again the dreadful cry sounded loudly in their ears. Quick Jack, open the door and we will send out Butch, said Harry, urgently. Butch was a large and very ferocious Rottweiler that belonged to Jack, and always accompanied him wherever he went. Hurriedly Jack opened the door and attempted to coax the dog to go out, but the poor animal refused to go. When Jack attempted to grab him and force him out through the door, Butch curled up and howled in a loud and mournful tone. Go get him! urged Harry as he helped get hold of the dog and wrestle it out of the door. Almost immediately the dog was lifted up into the air by some invisible power and within seconds he fell again to the ground lifeless, and the doorstep was covered with his entrails and blood. It was the final straw for Harry. He had lost all patience and he once again made a grab for his shotgun and called to Jack, come on, big lad, grab something heavy and follow me. This damn thing has really pissed me off now and I have to get a crack at it. By God it will rue the day it annoyed me. I'll follow you anywhere Harry, said Jack, but I would not tackle any banshee for a million pounds. Mary took a strong hold of Harry by the trousers and screamed at him, don't you go out there. Just leave her alone while she leaves you alone. You can have no luck in this world or the next if you make any attempt to attack a banshee. Hush, woman. Harry snapped at her and he pushed her away contemptuously. 
Jack now bit the bullet and followed Harry out of the door. The wild crying continued, and it seemed to come from somewhere near the big hay barn behind the house. The two men went around to the rear of the house and paused for a moment. Again, they heard the fearful cry, and, in response, Harry raised his shotgun. Don't fire, pleaded Jack. Harry did not reply and gave Jack a scornful look as he placed his finger on the trigger and squeezed it. Bang! The gun exploded with a great thundering sound. An extraordinary scream now filled the night air, which was ten times louder and more terrifying than they heard before. Their hair stood erect on the two men in huge, round drops of sweat ran down their faces in quick succession. There was a glare of reddish-blue light that illuminated the entire hay shed and, at the same time, the rumbling of the death coach could again be heard coming toward them. The coach drove right up to the house, drawn by six headless black horses and the figure of a withered old woman encircled with blue flame was seen running floating across the yard. This spectral image entered that ominous carriage and they drove away with a horrible sound following. In an instant the coach swept through the tall bushes which surrounded the house and, as it disappeared, the old spectre let loose one last scream at the two men, while she waved her fleshless arms at them angrily. In moments it was lost to sight, but the unearthly creaking of the wheels, the tramping of the horses, and the appalling cries of the banshee continued to fill the night for quite a considerable time afterwards. Their bravery tested, the two men quickly returned to the safety of the house, making sure that the door was once again made fast. They need not have worried because there was nothing that came to disturb them the rest of that night. In fact, they were not disturbed for the rest of the time they stayed there, which was only a couple of days more until the arrival of Old Mary's nephew. Old Mary, however, did not live long after these events, for her health declined after that terrible night. She received all the sacraments of her faith and her remains were decently interred in the churchyard where her beloved family had all been buried. The Banshee has never returned since that night, although several members of that same family have since come to the end of their mortal existence. That fearful, warning cry was never heard again and, it is said that the spirit will never visit again until every one of the existing generation shall have gone to their eternal rest. Both Jack and his friend Harry lived on for many years after the events, their friendship undiminished by the years. Often, over the odd bottle of whiskey, the two men would laugh as they recounted their strange adventure with the Banshee. Sadly, however, it's all over with them too and their tombstones stand tall in that lonely churchyard.